0: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with Professor Akhil Amar. Hello, Akhil. Hey, Andy. Nice to see you. Good to see you. So we're taping this during Constitution Month. I'm not going to tell you exactly when, but Constitution Day is uh, designated by law. On, uh, what, September 17th, is that right? September 17th, correct. And, and we actually, know,
1: since, since if we're claiming the whole month, Andy, this is your birth month. This is my birth month. It's my anniversary month, so we're being online. very pluralistic here. Okay. <laughs> yes. yes.
0: And actually, we've received a, a big birthday present of sorts, not so much for ourselves as for our listeners. We're thrilled to tell you that a Marcus Constitution has been approved as a resource for continuing legal education. So that starting with our October 4th episode, that's um, two episodes after this one, uh, if you're an attorney or a judge admitted to practice anywhere in the United States, you'll be able to earn CLE credit just by listening to our podcast. This is made possible by a partnership with the New Jersey State Bar Association, but it isn't just for members of the New Jersey Bar. Details on just how to do this will be forthcoming beginning with this October 4th episode. So be sure to tune in to that one and, of course, future episodes as well. But I can tell you that it's going to be incredibly simple to obtain the credit and our podcast will remain completely free to all. So to mark this milestone, we will have a special episode on that date. Uh, Details forthcoming. Don't miss it. Okay, well, you know, we're in the news this week, Akil, um, uh, sort of. Um, I picked up my, my copy of the New York Times today and I saw uh, an article by Adam Liptak, where our friend Steve Calabresi is quoted and is, he's pictured in, in a uh, dramatic uh, fountain of youth that uh, rendered him many years younger and he's taking issue with a position that we took uh, recently um, on the question of uh, the president being an officer and subject to uh, the 14th Amendment Section 3 under certain circumstances. And, uh, and they actually link to our podcast because, uh, as you know, you and uh, disagreed quite uh, dramatically with the original article, which is by the former Attorney General Michael Mukasey. So um, what you know, do you want to respond to that? Do you, what do you want to say to our, to our uh, listeners about that?
1: Um, that we welcome them to listen to the episode uh, in its entirety, um, both for substance and tone. Um, We can return to this issue in future episodes, and I suspect we will, because we're going to get rulings of various sorts in various states. So so obviously this issue is not going away. This podcast has not uh, been afraid to take strong positions and it's also not been afraid to um, admit mistakes of of substance and tone where we think uh, mistakes have been made or to be much more blunt where I have made mistakes. Andy never makes mistakes but I do and that's fine and I own them. We talked uh, uh, about whether I got the tone right in talking about the website designer and a certain word that was used again and again. So we can come back to this at a certain point, but for now, I'm actually comfortable with what I said, what I didn't say, if you listen carefully, the way I said it, and we just encourage our um, listeners to listen for themselves, our old faithful uh, audience and uh, new people, because we're getting new people all the time, and tell us what you think. We are open to hear your views, and this whole episode, in fact, is going to be today responding to various things that our audience uh, has asked us about.
0: Right. I mean, you were referring to the use of the word bigot in a previous uh, podcast, and some of our listeners wrote in and they said, you know, maybe you were a little over the top with that. And we said, you're right. We were wrong. And by the way, the reason that I don't seem to make mistakes is that I have the editing pen (laughs) uh, for the podcast. So the mistakes somehow vanish before they're they're broadcast for the most part. But um, the other thing I would say is, of course, if you were going to – enter into a debate here, you might have more to say. Oh, yes.
1: Uh, lots of stuff, and we will. Um, and one thing maybe we'll put up on uh, the show notes is a important, uh, relatively recent and very impressive and thoughtful piece, I think, by Mark Graeber in the Balkanization website. And, and there's going to be lots more. Stay tuned. We'll return to this issue at the appropriate time and place.
0: Yes, and we will post this, uh, this post from Mark Graeber, which is called Section three of and under nonsense, the sequel. And uh, so uh, that'll be up there. And, and that was a, a piece that addressed some uh, questions that Akhil has actually been cited on uh, by the Supreme Court for having to do with originalism, uh, not only looking at the founding, but at other times in American history. Paying well.
1: attention to the 14th Amendment, exactly so. Okay, so Const- I love it. Because actually there is Constitution Day, which is September 17th. There is actually out there in the world Constitution Week. There really is. This is the week of the 17th, and the reasons, there's a reason why. That I'll explain. Constitution Month may be something, Andy, that you just created, but let's let, and invented. Let's go with it. Here's why Constitution Day and Constitution Week are actually important. The late Senator Robert Byrd from West Virginia may he rest in peace. Got through Congress a bill that requires basically all institutions of higher learning. That get federal funding, I, I may have the details about the trigger exactly, I'm a little bit wrong, but, but basically, educational institutions that get government funding are obliged by law, as a condition of their federal funding, to have some sort of material programming, educational offerings, on or about Constitution Day, on or near, so that's why you get Constitution Week. Now, someone might say, well, that violates the First Amendment itself. No, it doesn't, because you don't have to be pro-Constitution. It doesn't have to be rah-rah. It's, just, it's about the topic of the Constitution. You have to have some programming. So September, actually, as a month, is, truthfully, fairly busy for me, because there are a lot of institutions out there that need federal funding, and sometimes I get desperate calls <laughs> uh, 72 hours be- before the, the, the event. Because of Zoom, I'm able to do certain things that I couldn't have done in an earlier era.
0: Yeah, I, I refer to it also as the uh, Akil Amar Full Employment Act. <laughs> Exactly. And thank you, Senator Byrd. I'm looking forward to the day when I start getting calls for that, because you're so full. You you will, Andy. Just you wait, Henry Higgins. Yeah, indeed. Okay, well, look, I think, so that's interesting that it's not a First Amendment. But what what if a law required that you have programming on religion, but they didn't say whether you had to be pro or con?
1: Look, sometimes you have to be pro. You basically have to teach Standard mathematics, conventional science, astronomy, yes, it can be a required subject. And it, and if you teach that the sun revolves around the earth, you will be fired, okay, in a, pu- a public school, public university. So astronomy, yes. Astrology, no, it doesn't have to be a required subject. We do teach about religion in public schools. Um, I learned about the world's great religions in ninth grade uh, that was that was part of we, we sort of learned about the world we learned about ancient civilizations in different parts of the world and i think sixth grade i learned about aztecs incas and mayas in ninth grade you know we, we studied i can't remember which ancient civilizations but but egypt china india i can't remember all the details you're allowed to teach the bible as literature but not as religion
0: now, we do have compulsory education um, in this country, um, but it doesn't have to be public education. You can go to private schools, right? And that's because of a... I mean, that comes out of a Supreme Court case, doesn't
1: it? Pierce versus Society Sisters stands for the proposition that we're not like ancient Sparta, and actually I think the uh, opinion of the court refers to ancient Sparta. We do not consider a children in America the property of the state, their parents have unwritten constitutional rights to superintend their education in various ways. And so there is a right under Pierce versus Society Sisters and another case from about the same era. I think these are both 1920s cases called Meyer versus Nebraska. So there's a right to go to private school and a right to study religion, a right to learn a foreign language. One state actually tried to make it crime or prohibit the teaching um, or study of the german language this arose in the aftermath alongside world war one where there was a lot of anti-german sentiment in america so yes you have a right to go to a private school you don't have to go to a public school you're not the property of the state you as a as a 10 year old but we have laws everywhere for accreditation not everything counts as a school And we even have, in effect, I'm not sure there's a Supreme Court case that says this quite, but there's a broadly recognized right to actually um, homeschool one's children, just as one can pick a private school. But there are accreditation standards, and those accreditation standards can require, again, the teaching of mathematics or standard science. You have to at least teach in many jurisdictions Darwin's theory of speciation, a theory of natural selection, bluntly evolutionary theory. You don't have to teach it as something that cannot be challenged, but you may be obliged in many places to teach the scientific method, to explain to uh, students what the scientific method is, is, hypothesis, formation, evidence, collection, evidence, assessment, replicability. What science really is, Andy, and you're a scientist, isn't so much a body of knowledge, although it is that, it's actually a set of tools and techniques for preserving and expanding, and in some cases, revising our body of human knowledge. And you have to teach that, or you can at least be obliged to teach that as a requirement of accreditation, Even if you're homeschooling your kid, so what I explain to my students is in Oliver Twist and the movie, um, the musical Oliver. It was kind of preposterous to turn this pretty grim Dickens tale into a a happy-go-lucky musical. But Fagin's School for Thieves does not count. Okay, he'll teach you how to pick a pocket or two, but no, that's not a a proper school for purposes of accreditation. Whereas Fagin's School of astronomy might very well have a satisfied proper accreditation standards even if it's a private institution
0: I think there's uh, New York State is having a, an issue now with a, uh, a district that um, is primarily inhabited by uh, Orthodox Jews ultra-orthodox Jews and they're they're taking them to task for not meeting accreditation standards and this is it may even be a public school district, um, I don't know the details of that. And the idea
1: is, yes, we're not supposed to have madrasas here. We're not, you know, you have to learn certain things. If some schools aren't meeting certain test standards, then they can, you know, go into receivership or uh, be taken over. But but part of the idea here is that by the time someone reaches adulthood, they should be allowed to decide for themselves what kind of life they want to live. And if you haven't actually, if they haven't received a sufficient education to be able to decide for themselves, that's not fair to them. So a very important case called Wisconsin versus Yoder, it involved the Amish, was about a school attendance requirement. It was about middle-aged adolescents. So I think it was about 15-year-olds or 16-year-olds. And the question is whether the state could require them to go to school. And it didn't have to be a public school, but the question is whether a schooling requirement could be imposed. And the Amish, in the case, wanted an exemption. They won it in the Berger court. It's a controversial decision. It was not unanimous. And Berger says, well, the Amish, they're a good community. And, and uh, so, but should that should that count? The question is, are you being given enough of an education so that when you turn 18 and now you're on your own and a voter, you can decide whether you want to stay in the Amish community or do something else. You you have enough capacity to make life decisions, who you're going to vote for, where you're going to live, what religion you're going to pursue or, or profess. And if we don't give you any background in learning even how to learn, then you're stuck. You're not going to be able to kind of choose for yourself at age 18 whether you want to stay in this Amish community or go out to the big city and make your way in the world.
0: You know, it's it's interesting. I in listening to that, there's a lo- I hear a little bit of a tension between that principle and another principle that you espouse, um, because you're. It sounds like you're saying that. Well, okay, we're. You know, it might be that your religion, you know, dictates a certain set of things that you should learn and a certain set of, set of things that you shouldn't learn, or that you know that wouldn't be appropriate to teach. But nevertheless, we're going to require that everyone. Uh, learn these various things because they're going to be we want them to be able to make a choice uh, when they're adults and so therefore it would seem that if that were contrary to the religion of the individual that really what you're saying is that in part that the that when this person becomes an adult that they really should be able to choose what religious path they follow okay well the the state has a permissible interest in that right but then, at the same time, you say, "Well, if we read the first sentence of the Fourteenth Amendment, or the first, you know, the first section of the Fourteenth Amendment, we're saying, really, in effect, that birthright citizenship—you um, know—you get birthright citizenship, and then you have a certain degree of equality based on certain innate qualities, whether you're, you know, what your race is. You can't, you 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 can't, you know, determine your race. So therefore." You shouldn't be discriminated against on that basis. You maybe you know you could change your gender maybe, but it's not easy, you know, um, and things like that. And one of those things is religion. You say Jew or Gentile frequently when you talk mm-hmm. about. It. I do, um, I do. So, so the notion that it's very difficult to change that is a little bit in tension with this notion that everyone that we want to provide everyone with this opportunity to do this.
1: Well, there's one question about whether the difficulty is created by the government or not, or created by your own conscience, your own choices, your own community. I happen to have chosen my religion as an adult. I'm an adult convert Christian. I was baptized as an adult. My parents raised me so that I could decide things for myself, and the government didn't get in the way. The government didn't require me to be Christian didn't prohibit me from being Christian I got to choose the birth equality idea you know is you're right the deep idea is that in effect and we're going to talk about this in this episode where we're going to take a lot of audience questions and there are audience questions of various sorts that have piled up over the over the weeks but some of what we're going to talk about is this deep birth equality enlightenment idea that everyone is born equal and we judge people by what they do, the government, judges people by what they do and what they choose rather than who they are or how they're born. It's a very deep kind of enlightenment idea. Here's what the government doesn't do. And my friend uh, Jed Rubenfeld has written about this very compellingly. Even if the government says you cannot do this or that or the other thing, the government could even say maybe no one can be a baker, because we've decided that leavened goods are bad or something for some health reason. You, so even if the government can say, you may not do this, you may not do that. You may not do the other thing. You, you can't speed, you know. Oh, but I'm a speeder. That's who I'm born to be. No, we can prohibit you from doing all this, But the government in general doesn't oblige you to do one specific thing. Oh, your name is Joseph Carpenter. So you will be a carpenter. And oh, in a, in an earlier age in the world, Your name was Carpenter because you came up from a family of carpenters and you were going to be in the family business. Oh, okay. And -and so-and-so is Boatwright. That's their last name. Oh, because they come from a family of Boatwrights or Wheelwrights. Smiths are people who actually um, do a certain thing with tools and some are goldsmiths and some are silversmiths. Some last names actually are very much, you know, occupational. I mentioned, I think, Baker before, Barber. Government in general does not say, oh, Andy, you will be an ophthalmologist, you know, even if you don't. And there's nothing wrong with it. But there is something wrong if the government says, yes, that's the only thing that you get to choose in your life. You, you can you can do that, but nothing else. And Jed says abortion laws formally seem to only prohibit things. OK, you cannot get an abortion. But he says actually in their operation they compel things they are forcing people to be mothers it's a very very interesting argument it's in the harvard law review we're going to have jed on at some point to discuss things like the 303 case so so stay tuned oh andy we have so many interesting people lined up um, for our future podcasts
0: yeah and uh you know i think the audience might be a little impatient because we've been promising some of these guests for a long time but they have agreed and uh, you know, our agendas, you know, tend to take the form of some of these things that we've been planning to do for a long time and other things that come out of uh, current events. Uh, sometimes we'll follow Supreme Court cases through their various stages. So think you know, we try to be flexible that way. And one of the things we do from time to time is we take audience questions. And so we've had a lot of questions recently. And by the way, I want to thank the audience for submitting many thoughtful questions and also for complying with the request that you include your your email address um, so that we're able to respond from time to time personally to you on those. So since we requested that, every person has, has supplied their email address. So I'm very appreciative of that. Um, but Andy,
1: just to your point, that's one of the reasons we've kind of you know uh, interrupted your regularly scheduled program. Uh, programming to have two episodes with will bode and mike paulson uh, because everyone in the world is talking about their ideas and and they were willing to come on our podcast to talk about them in great detail and and this is like really important in the world is donald trump eligible to be on the ballot in this state or that state so so we prioritized that so when stuff happens in the world you have and i haven't talked about this offline but i'm going to tell the audience bob woodward is coming back so stay tuned he was one of our first very important guests right when we launched this almost three years ago and he'll be back to talk in part about how to think about the trump scandals which he has covered and, uh, and and he's been very much in, involved in all that, as compared to the Nixon scandals and Watergate. So stay tuned. Uh, Ruth Marcus came once; she promised to come again. I just
0: mentioned Jed Rubenfeld. Oh, there are a lot more audience members. And you just mentioned the the three hundred three case. So why don't we why don't we start off with a, a question about that? Because you know, in this notion of of compelled conduct, because three, which you also mentioned in the, the three hundred three case, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, addresses this or is concerned with this question mm-hmm. of compelled conduct. So mm-hmm. here's a question from our listener, Stephen Mizrahi. So he says, um, regarding 303 Creative, I appreciated your discussion about how a website is expressive and thus speech, and just to insert mm-hmm. here, as you recall, um, Stephen, the uh, parties stipulated that the website was expressive. So this wasn't really litigated as to whether or not it was expressive, but it was stipulated. Okay, so, and back to his question. But I wonder the historical support for that. Let's take Justice Jackson's hypothetical regarding the Santa Claus portrait at the mall at oral argument, rewind about 250 years, and turn it into the painter who paints portraits of the founding fathers. Did, for example, President George Washington think his painter was engaging in expressive speech when painting his portrait. I can imagine arguments on both sides. but I wonder if there's evidence in the historical record to decide the issue either way. So a lot of interesting things raised in that question you know one is the notion of um, looking at historical evidence in general to justify legal approaches. Um, you know another is, this question of, well, is a website expressive or not? Which, again, as I said, wasn't litigated. So we can perhaps ask you both of those things, Akil. Right. It's a wonderful question. It has many components, and I'm going to
1: try to separate some of them out. So here's one point. Even if painting isn't speech, isn't the press, It might nevertheless be obviously protected because, and I'm going to give you several things, it's an unenumerated right, like the rights to use contraception in your home. And how would we find that? We'd look, for example, at lots of states protecting this right, tradition of protection at the state level, and that might be the basis for it, right, even if it wasn't speech or press. So... I wrote a book called America's Unwritten Constitution. That's chapter three, actually, what I called lived rights. Here's actually, I'll just read you one paragraph. It begins that chapter with a depiction of a kind of family just hanging out on their porch. It's rustic, but truthfully could be almost any state, almost any century. No. And there's a fellow sitting on a, on a chair or a stool and he's playing the fiddle. And there's a dog on the porch and there are people wearing hats and they're just kind of hanging out and, uh, and relaxing. It's a painting called Home Sweet Home. It's not particularly famous. Oh, painting, yes. But here's the first paragraph. Nothing in the written constitution explicitly guarantees the right to have a pet dog, to play the fiddle, to relax at home, to enjoy family life with your loved ones, to raise your children, or to wear a hat. Yet these and countless other liberties are generally upheld by American governments, absent compelling reasons for abridgment. Many of Americans' most basic rights are simply facts of life. And then this is a kind of a a quote that I made up. This is how we, the people, do things in America, and we therefore have the right to keep doing these things. So one important truth is there are unenumerated rights in the Constitution, the rights to paint. Okay, so that's, that's, that's one thought. That's chapter three. Now, here's a second thought. It's actually the first chapter. It's called America's Implicit Constitution. It's reading between the lines. And when we read between the lines, we sometimes see if there's a unifying principle. Because they actually say with the Ninth Amendment, we can't list and enumerate all the rights. And don't think that we have. And don't read these rights by negative implication. Okay, they're actually giving you a rule of construction. And actually, the words of the Ninth Amendment use this phrase, shall not be construed. Let me just read everyone the language of the Ninth Amendment. Yes, and of course, this applies against the federal government, but there are similar principles. And I'll tell you where about states and local governments. But Amendment 9 says the following is part of what we call the Bill of Rights. The enumeration, that is the listing, in this constitution of certain rights shall not be construed. So it's a rule of construction, of interpretation, to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And so now the question is, okay, fine, there are unenumerated rights, where do we find them? I just gave you one technique, custom, practice, what states do, not one or two of them, but lots of them. Now I'm giving you a second one, look at the written words and connect the dots. And I'll give you some examples of that. And I just told you the Ninth Amendment, but of course, when we talk about states and localities, It's this 14th Amendment phrase that we've talked that we've probably invoked dozens of times on this podcast. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. So there apparently are these fundamental rights, these privileges, these immunities. It stays Canterbury, and it doesn't itemize them. It doesn't enumerate them. But I don't think that that means all bits are off. You can just do whatever you want. So I'm now giving you method. Just like we talked about before, scientific method, this is constitutional method. That's the most important thing is how we go about doing this thing that we call constitutional law. So I'm going to pick an example from Justice Scalia because someone else has asked about Justice Scalia, and I don't always agree with Justice Scalia, but here's one thing that I do very much agree with that he once said. It's actually in some tension with sometimes what he uh, elsewhere says where he can be way too literalistic and not see the big picture. Is there a constitutional right to pen a letter to someone and deliver it Through the mails or, you know, through through a private courier or something. And the literalist could say, well, that's not oral speech. It says freedom of speech, but but, but this is a product of a pen. This is not the printing press, you know, it's a pen. But of course we'd say... Speech and press, when you put them together, especially when you see them in the broader context of all the other things, speech, press, petition, assembly, actually free exercise, these are about expressive rights more generally. That's what connects the dots. That's the implicit constitution. That's chapter one of my book, America's Unwritten Constitution. It doesn't say separation of powers, but it Says Article One, Article Two, Article Three: Legislature, Executive, Judiciary—three separate articles. Actually, it's a separation of powers. Textually, it doesn't say federalism, doesn't say rule of law, doesn't say checks and balances. This is the idea of the great Charles Black, and we had an episode. About Charles Black and the music of the law, which is seeing things holistically. I'm going to give you other examples, but these are two: custom, unenumerated rights, and starting with the text and reading between the lines. A private letter, but I would say for the same reason. What's is there really a difference between a pen and a paintbrush, between a piece of paper and a parchment and a canvas? Okay, so um, but Andy, I know you want to jump in.
0: Yeah, um, one of the you know, we, and listeners to this podcast, this will sound somewhat familiar because we have covered some of this ground before. But, but I think it's you know it's important, and and this is not exactly the same. But anyway, um, one of the things that, and I say that because one of the things that we've talked about is that there's a difference between enumerated and unenumerated rights, um, and in some ways, unenumerated rights. Are a little bit more subject to change in terms of the way it, that... It the, depends. Right. Unenumerated like, enumerated rights, if they're based on
1: custom, yes, because custom could change. But if they're based on interpolating between um, two tech,
0: I'm not sure implied rights are different well, that's, from that's express That's exactly rights. what I wanted to ask you is, you know, is an implicit right that you've defined here, is that an enumerated right? That's simply, no, or it's because it it's not textually right?
1: specified um, but I think it's in, it's it's entitled to the same you know weight. Yes, it matters how you derive a right. If it's just from custom, custom changes, that's undercut the basis of the right. But if you're saying it's actually in the Constitution as a whole, it's just not listed, mm-hmm. you know. But it's actually implied. I would say, well, then it's it's in the First Amendment. And so yes, Andy, you see, it matters not only what the right is, but how we derive it. Mm-hmm. So I think implied rights are on a par with express rights. Now you have to get it right, but you could you could misinterpret the word speech. You could misinterpret the word press, just like you could misinterpret the implicit connections between speech and press. So that's always gonna be, there's always gonna be the
0: possibility of interpretive mistake of a certain sort of, of course. So there's a, cer- a certain hierarchy in a sense of rights, in the sense that, you know, the rights that are that are not just that are written, that are enumerated, you know, are the hardest to yes. turn overturn. You'd have to amend the constitution, in effect,
1: or um, decide that you just mis- you your um, interpretation of that and then application they're not was a mistake. Yeah, but then, but then they're not enumerated, is correct? What you're saying. So correct. They, right. Right. So just like the, you so say, well, you know,
0: I misread it, uh, the implication, or something right, so, like that. Just so. so, so. So, if it is an enumerated right, then that would be, in a sense, the highest, you know, level in this in this formulation. And then perhaps right. an implicit right, you know, maybe it has the same status as an enumerated right, but you'd be more likely, I would say, to decide that you would misinterpret. it. It's possible it. you misinterpreted.
1: Yeah. You 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 pumped up the, the level of generality. Let me give you other examples of implied rights. And sometimes there's see, a, a, there's a text that underlies it, the privileges use clause. I'm saying this is one of the privileges. Let's take certain procedures. It says the Fifth and the Sixth Amendments talk about a right of counsel and confrontation and compulsory process and speedy trial and jury trial of the district, the rights to compel testimony, compel witnesses in your favor. It doesn't say textually, that you have a right to confront physical evidence that's introduced against you, a fingerprint, a DNA analysis. Okay. But of course I would say, gee, if the whole point of the enumerated rights is to now you to allow you to put on a defense that you're innocent, they've mentioned certain things. Other things are are implied. They go without saying, I could also say, I could say this is the ninth amendment. I could say it's privileges. I could say this is covered by global due process. Due process is I'm um, connecting the dots. It's like in The King and I, when the King of Siam is always saying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. So I think, suppose it didn't say that you had a right to compel the production of witnesses in your favor. I might say that, would have been part of due process of law. It it didn't say speedy trial or public trial. If these things that were historically elements of a fair trial, as understood in in the Anglo-American experience, especially the American experience, they're components of due process. And we've had episodes where I said, there's a right to take the stand in your own defense. And actually on that No one at the founding actually, no state constitution said that, federal constitution didn't, no one at the founding actually could take their stand in their own defense. Um, Even as late as their reconstruction, only one state, I believe, allowed you to do so, Maine. But at a certain point, lots of states, almost all of them, everyone I think except Georgia by the mid-20th century, saw that as central to how we do trials in America today. And the Supreme Court said, you have a right to do so. And in Samuel Alito's maiden opinion for the court, he presupposed actually a right to testify on in one's own behalf. He's a former prosecutor, but he said, of course, that's um, essential to a basic trial. Now, I'm going to give you a third basis. On that second one, it's not just that it's, I think, painting is pretty much like what is what is a printing press? It's it's printing, it's pushing ink onto a flat medium. That's actually what a printing press is. Well, how is that so different than putting oil on a canvas, it seems to me, actually. So I could say it's literally a press. That's what you do. you pressing, you know, something onto a flat surface. So it's literally freedom of the press, I could say, because the press here is not a media. It's actually um, a certain technology. Or I could say it's Implicit in the First Amendment as a whole, in its text, its speech and press and things that connect the dots between them. And the person who said that is Justice Scalia, by the way. Now, truthfully, cards on the table, the backstory, I'm not sure Scalia initially understood that. He had a law clerk who convinced him about that. The law clerk his name's Stephen Calabresi, and he's been on our podcast on several episodes. So Steve said, no, with all due respect, Justice Scalia, you can't just focus on little individual words. You know, you have to. Now, here's a broader version of that. I think there would be m- much of what we call the First Amendment even without the First Amendment. Because central to the process of fair elections and democratic self-governance is process at least of open political discourse you have to have that and if you force me to point to a text I could I could say it's the Republican government guarantee of article four and then someone would say well how about at the federal level I would say well it's implicit in having elections every two years for the for the house they have to be fair elections you can't have fair elections if people can't speak that's how actually in America that was built into What we understood elections to be, and Article One does talk about elections, and implicitly, therefore, fair elections and the kind of elections that America has had even before the Constitution. Okay, Um, so Charles Black, very famously, says even if there weren't a First Amendment text, there'd be a lot of the First Amendment. uh, at least for political expression. That's one of his most famous contributions in a little book that he wrote called Structure and Relationship in Constitutional Law. Now
0: let me give you, so now we've had two and a half reasons. Well, before you leave that reason, Nikhil, one of the things that we've talked about is that before the 14th Amendment, a lot of these things don't apply to the states, mm-hmm. um, including the, much of the First Amendment possibly. But you've just described that one thing that did apply to the states was it was that each state had to have a Republican form of government. Right. You just said that the first amendment that many of the the contents of the first amendment are intrinsic to a Republican form of government. Correct. So wouldn't that mandate that states therefore have those things if they it are would, intrinsic but the, the Supreme, but the Supreme court didn't say so. They're just instead making up
1: BS stuff like Dred Scott. Okay. So yes. And one of the reasons is because, Oh, and this is the new book that I'm actually working on. Slave states try to shut down discourse. And we just look the other way. That's what I had in mind. Yes. Um, So Abraham Lincoln, Andy, we were talking about him offline earlier today, you and I. Abraham Lincoln gets zero popular votes, not zero electoral votes, zero popular votes south of Virginia because they've shut down free discourse. The south has made it literally criminal to be a member of the Republican Party, to be anti-slavery. This won't just get you lynched extra legally, which it will, actually, but they are making it a crime to have a position on federal issues like slavery in the territories, which is what the Republican Party is all about. No slavery in the territories. The Republican Party was criminalized way in the 1850s way more than the Communist Party ever was in the 1950s. And that was all, I would say, unconstitutional under a proper understanding of Republican government. Why didn't courts enforce a robust understanding? In part, just because the slave power was capital S, capital P, the slave power, capital S, capital P. Until Lincoln, you have no anti-slavery president. Presidents are appointing justices. Justices aren't taking seriously this. The Republican Guarantee Clause is not really enforced robustly. It's anemic. The great Charles Sumner calls it, after the Civil War, the sleeping giant of the Constitution, because it does have certain implications that we've been talking about that is now reawakening. But yes, I would say... Even before the 14th Amendment, certain aspects of the Bill of Rights do apply properly understood against states, not, for example, necessarily the right of, of counsel in a criminal case or a speedy trial in a criminal case or rule against double jeopardy. Those are good things. Don't get me wrong. I'm just not sure they, they go to the essence of a government of by and for the people, a Republican government, whereas I am saying free and fair elections, including robust Political expression is integral to the very nature of Republican government in a way that a right against excessive bail or a prohibition on takings without just compensation might not not be similarly of the essence of a Republican government. So now two and a half reasons. Custom. No one has prohibited painting you know, in, in America uh, in general. Look at what states do. The words of the amendments, speech, press and drawing a line between them. The spirit of not just the First Amendment, but the Constitution as a whole, protecting at least political paintings. And, and the painting of George Washington is a political painting, let me tell you. And Trumbull is really important at the founding, you know, and, and Gilbert Stewart and Copley. Some of these are some of the, the, the preeminent painters, Rembrandt Peel. Well, you're,
0: you're, yeah. saying that, you're saying that, but the, part of the essence of this question from Mr. Mizrahi is he says, Did President George Washington think his painter was engaging? Yes, and I'm going to give you
1: some more evidence for just that right now, because here's a third. I've given you two and a half. Custom and connecting the dots between words, speech, and press, seeing the Constitution as a whole. Chapter three of America's unwritten Constitution is custom. Chapter one is the implicit Constitution, reading the thing as a whole. It's called reading between the lines. Here's chapter two america's enacted constitution let's look at the very process by which the constitution came into existence because i think that's a good source of the question is how we find non-textual non-itemized rights and i'm saying how about if we study carefully how the constitution itself came about and it came about by robust political expression it, there was freedom of the press in the very process of adopting the Constitution before there was a First Amendment. How did the First Amendment come about? People are asked whether they support the Constitution. They say, yes, but we'd like an itemization of rights. We have them in states. Yeah, and the Fed will say, that's dangerous because we're going to, you're not going to be able to list everything. The compromise is let's list lots of things and have a Ninth Amendment to remind everyone we haven't listed um, everything. But before there was a First Amendment, there was actually freedom of the press such that on September 19th, oh, Constitution Week, in 1787, newspapers begin to print the Constitution start to finish, and no one's forcing them to do that. They're choosing to do that. No, There's no Robert Byrd requiring every printing press to publish a thing, but they are so that people can decide whether they are for it or against it. That's why it's short, so it can be printed start to finish in newspapers, and people can read it and decide for themselves after talking to their neighbors and, and friends. And it was printed up and down the continent. And I, in chapter two, say, oh, it's not just that newspapers were printing it. There was robust, uninhibited, wide-open discourse of every sort in the very process of that went into adopting the Constitution, this year-long process. And Andy, you and I talked about a a mutual friend of ours who says, don't have long lists that have more than three or four items in general. I'm going to give you two sentences where I I defied the rule of of this friend. Here's actually how Chapter 2 of America's Unwritten Constitution begins. And I apologize in advance. It's going to be a long list, and the word painting is going to be in this list. And then I'm going to read you one other long list from my current book in progress. And this is in a section called The Freedom of Speech. The law of our land came to life on a continent awash with speech and through a process that teemed with talk of the freest sort, in an extraordinary efflorescence of accusations, addresses, allegories, analyses, appeals, arguments, assemblies, boasts. Books, canards, cartoons, complaints, conversations, costumes, debates, deliberations, denials, diatribes, effigies, encomiums, essays, exaggerations, exegesis, exhortations, flags, harangues, insults, lamentations, letters, statements, opinions, paintings, pamphlets, parades, petitions, plays, pleas, poems, prayers, prophecies, quips, sermons, songs, speeches, squibs, symbols, toasts, and writings of every sort. Americans practice an amazingly vigorous freedom of expression in the course of enacting the constitution. So built into the very constitution. Yes. Paintings of all sorts. Trumbull is really important. Um, And Washington is using painters to actually get his image out there to create a sense of American identity. Very much so. Um, Now, Here's what I say in the new book, Andy, and you've read this chapter. This is from the preface. And this new book has lots of art in it, as did the words that made us have a lot of art. And even America's Constitution and Biography had art. Benjamin Franklin is inventing the idea of a political cartoon. Paul Revere actually isn't just a silversmith. He actually is an amazing cartoonist. And his cartoons, his paintings about what he calls the Boston Massacre, Oh, which not everyone calls the Boston Massacre, you see. They're very polemical, very political. They're hugely central to the American revolutionary experience. And they're featured front and center as pieces of art, as paintings. And that one is in chapter two of the words that made us. But here's the new book. I'm working on it now. Andy, you're one of two people who's read the chapters. Here's, and remember the the tagline for all these books is America's Constitutional Conversation. The first one is the words that made us Um, How kind of America becomes an us, a we, a U.S., Um, the words that made us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. Volume two, not sure what the title will be. I think maybe Born Equal is the word, uh, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1840 to 1920. So now kind of Lincoln's era. And there's lots of art in it. I hope color, Um, paintings from people like Trumbull and Copley. But here's the paragraph where I violate the the rule of our mutual friend. The conversation, this constitutional conversation involved all branches and all levels of government and all manner of conversational instruments, old and new speeches, sermons, statutes, resolutions, rules, petitions, pamphlets, proclamations, judicial opinions, nonfiction books, newspapers, novels, letters, flags, banners, banners, Emblems, maps, monuments, telegrams, treatises, toasts, declarations, engravings, paintings, photographs, parades, pageants, plays, statues, sculptures, cartoons, conventions. Americans used all of these tools and more as they pondered and debated the deepest questions of the day. And Andy, I recently went over that sentence to make sure that in the book every single one of those words actually is followed up. There's at least one example of every single one of those things in that long list.
0: So a couple of things there, first of all, so you're one thing that you're establishing here is that all of these different media were used for forms of political expression. Right. Um, so, and I think you, you certainly have proven that. And just parenthetically, as I'm listening to it, I'm reminded that uh the first list was in alphabetical order, right? And the second list was alliterative, um, so that all the Ps come together and that sort of thing. The first one reminds me where, since it's the, that season and uh, for Jews, as high holy days are coming on Yom Kippur, there's a uh, a prayer that's offered where you're repenting, and we we list uh, you know different types of sins. Uh, and they're alphabetized, and it's called an alpha. Our sins are an alphabet of woe. But, oh, um, anyway. I did not know that. How cool! Yeah. So, uh, and it's listed also, by the way, uh, alphabetically in Hebrew, and then the translation in English is also alphabetical. So that's uh, that's pretty cool. But anyway, that's um, very cool yeah, if word, they were
1: able to preserve it.
0: Yeah, wordplay of it. So tran- the art of translation is quite. Uh, Quite interesting to study. But anyway, that's... that's Larry kind
1: of- Lessig is a very great constitutionalist. He's at Harvard. He's a former assistant of mine. And he's written important essays and even book chapters on translation in American constitutional law. Taking ideas from one period and applying them in a later period, he says, is like translation. And he has offered some very thoughtful meditations on that metaphor.
0: Mm. Um, so anyway, but getting back to the substance here. So yes, I think you know you've you've made the case powerfully that that political expression took place in a variety of media. Now, what question. I didn't
1: quite say is talk about all paintings. I'm focused in right. particular on political paintings because he asked about, you know, but a painting of George Washington is going to be a political painting. And in the words that made us, and even in an earlier book, America's Constitutional Biography, I have Edward Savage's painting
0: of the Washington family, and I'm showing you some important things about that painting. So now we've covered. I think what certainly, Akil, you've you've proven to, I think, probably everyone's satisfaction that expressive painting and such things are protected um in the constitution uh and but um especially political but even beyond that
1: under that first idea of custom and maybe maybe even the second of speech and press cuz not all speech and not all press are political republican government is especially about political expression and my enactment history thing was all about how the Constitution was adopted that what these were that was all you know political art, Paul Revere, Trumbull, Copley, and so on.
0: right. but I think that this question goes, and he's referring back to Justice Jackson's oral argument, where she gives an example of a Santa Claus portrait at a mall. Let's go back and see what Justice Jackson actually was saying. um so this is um. Page twenty-six of the transcript of the oral argument in the three hundred three case, um, which you can get on the Supreme Court website. That's where I got it. And uh, here's what she says. She says, and now she's talking here about photography as opposed to painting. But I think we can we can agree that that they're pretty much equidistant from press. So, you know, so
1: what I uh, just, Andy, on that, I have a, a considerable discussion in the new book about the advent of photography and how this is actually different from painting in certain ways. It's democratic. I have the first photograph of Abraham Lincoln ever taken in the new book. I have the first photograph that's extant of a, uh, a president. It's actually of an ex-president, John Quincy Adams. I have a lot on Matthew Brady's photographs of Abraham Lincoln and the corresponding engravings. Abraham Lincoln says, that's what made me president. Is Matthew Brady, when he comes to New York, it's the Cooper Institute, the Cooper Union speech, but also he goes to Brady's studio, who makes him look actually you know, attractive. And then there's an engraving of it that appears in Harper's Weekly, which is the equivalent of making it on the cover of the New York Times. I've got these amazing stills of Alexander Gardner, a, a Matthew Brady affiliate from Antietam, when you you're seeing all these dead bodies piling up and no one's ever seen anything like that before and this is the new medium of photography which is very well suited to taking pictures of dead people because they don't move and it takes a while for you know the the image to set so artists before Painters used to do things called still lives because they, you know, fruit or flowers on a table, fruits in a, in a vase on a table because the fruit doesn't move. You know, capturing, you know, a moving experience like the Battle of Bunker Hill, that's a little trickier, especially when you don't have freeze frame photography even. But that's why there's a lot of still lives in um, painting. But, oh, my gosh, when they when people see what dead bodies really look like and the do- and the bodies don't move. This is a really important political moment, just like in later periods of American history, when actually Walter Cronkite and CBS start to show us what it actually looks like in Vietnam with with moving pictures and stuff. Oh, my gosh. Or pictures of the incineration of Japanese cities, you know, with the the atomic bomb and and stuff like that. So photography is important. It actually is more democratic in certain ways. People who can't sit for a portrait can afford to have photographs taken. This is all central to my new book. These these are part of how we Americans are carrying on the constitutional conversation. And photography is a new medium, as is telegraphy, uh, telegraph machines. And I talk about all that in the new book. I'm I'm fascinated by these mechanisms of conversation and communication.
0: Right. And by the way, a couple of technical notes there. You know, you said you were talking about how, you know, early photography, um, a lot of it is still life and that sort of thing. It's not just that it's easier, it's that it's impossible to do because the shutter speeds are so slow
1: mm-hmm. that
0: you can't depict things in motion. Sure. In fact, you'll notice that in early photographs, uh, portraits, people are always either sitting down or leaning on something because they can't hold still standing up. Um, long enough to take their, their picture, you know, early on without it being... Mm-hmm. Yes, these blurry. daguerreotypes or whatever they're called. Well, yeah, and there's, yeah, a variety of, of things. It's not just daguerreotypes, but okay. So here's the quote from the oral argument. She says, you say that photography is expressive. This is Justice Jackson provo- proposing a hypothetical to the, uh, to the council. Can you give me your thoughts on a photography business in a shopping mall during the holiday season... That offers a product called Scenes with Santa. And this business wants to express its own view of nostalgia about Christmas's past by reproducing classic 1940s and 50s Santa scenes. They do it in sepia tone and they're customizing each one. This is not off a rack. They're really bringing the people in and having them interact with Santa children because they're trying to capture the feelings of a certain era. But precisely because they're trying to capture the feelings of a certain era, their policy is that only white children can be photographed with Santa in this way because that's how they view the scenes with Santa that they're trying to depict. Now the business will gladly refer families of color to the Santa at the other end of the mall who will take anybody, But and they will f- photograph families of color in other scenes, other scenes so they're not discriminating against the families. What they're saying is scenes with Santa is preserved for white families, and they want to have a sign next to the Santa that says only white children. Why isn't your argument that they should be able to do that? And maybe it is. Okay.
1: That's a very thoughtful hypothetical. And unlike Justice Breyer, she may have even written this out in advance or something because it's, it's very, very clear and coherent. I, I love Justice Breyer. And he's going to be on the show, by the way, folks, and in, in a future episode, he has agreed and I'll bite. I'll, I'll take, I'll take. So I'm a person of color. I would actually be excluded by that policy, but that's an easy hypothetical. They get to do it because of course what they're doing is expressive. And let me give you a few other examples. Okay. Oh, suppose you want to write a novel and you want to write a novel for it's a certain historical period and B- blacks or Asians for that matter, you know, aren't in your scenes. You're allowed to do that. And you're allowed, if you even have depictions to have them be demeaning depictions in words, uh, that's called gone with the wind. That's why I hate the, the novel. Truth be told, you're allowed to make a movie of this. It's called the movie gone with the wind. And I, I hate the movie, truth be told. And I have been in Atlanta. Um, I gave a speech to hundreds of people, Andy, and this is how I began. There were judges in the audience. I say, I hate the movie Gone with the Wind. My favorite scene is the burning of Atlanta. That's those were my first two sentences. And there are gasps. And I say, and I love Atlanta today. Okay, but one Atlanta had to burn away for a new Atlanta to be reborn in its ashes. But you're allowed to have a racist. Book. You're allowed to have a racist movie. You're allowed to have a racist photograph or a racist painting. Um, I'll say it some an, a different way. When your 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 daughter is in Hollywood, now you can be like Lynn Manuel Miranda and cast people of color to play the roles of historic white people. You can have a black George Washington and a in a colored Alexander Hamilton, um, but. For most of our history, we didn't have that. We had white people who looked like Thomas Jefferson playing Thomas Jefferson, and white people who looked like George Washington playing George Washington. And at your casting call, you're actually, whether expressly or not, saying, you know, whites only. And of course, you're allowed to do that. That's an easy case, truth be told. And that's true even if you're Open to the public in some way, you know, in that you're selling movie tickets or you're hiring people using ads
0: in the Screen Actors Guild magazine or something like that. Final point. Well, this is a little and, different, though. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying that you're wrong, but but you know, you're not writing novels for on request. In other words, you're you're not saying, okay, you can come and ask me what novel to write, and I'll write it. You're you're writing a novel and and anyone can read it. Black people can read it. White people can read it. So as as an an author is
1: perfect. uh, Author is perfectly able to say, I'm a ghost writer and I will write only for white people. Totally. That's 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 easy and obvious. I'm just saying that's a little bit
0: closer to this. Yeah,
1: good. Okay. so I'm glad you're pushing me. But yes, these are easy. So Justice Jackson, please. You know, I'm glad you asked that hypothetical and you ended with and maybe the answer is Yes, okay, the answer cannot be that that's somehow not expressive, you know, that that's not what the First Amendment is about. Of course, it's about that. And yes, there's a right to discriminate. If you're a private person, yes, there's a right to be a bigot, although it sounds as if these aren't bigots. They actually are just trying to do a certain thing with a certain vibe. Do I think someone's a bigot if they decide they're going to do a movie about the life of Washington and want to cast it with someone who actually conventionally looks like Washington, which would be a white-skinned person? I, I love what Lynn Miranda has done. I dedicate my most recent book to, among other of people, Lynn Miranda and his spouse, Vanessa Nadal. I really do. But you don't have to be that in order to be compliant, you know, with official policy or something. You get to choose as an artist how you're going to do these depictions. But the one final thing I did want to tell you, since we're talking about Trumbull and Savage, we're talking about paintings of George Washington, in my books, I have two paintings of George Washington, and each one there's actually a black person, interestingly. His name is William Lee. I earlier mentioned a painting by Edward Savage. It's called The Washington Family. It's in Washington, D.C., in the National Gallery of Art. And There's a liveried servant kind of in the background. You really don't see many facial features, but it's called the Washington family. And we think that's a depiction of William Lee, Billy Lee, uh, Washington's favorite slave, his valet, whom he frees by name and separately and before everyone else in his will. And I talk about all that in my last chapter called Adieu, when everyone leaves the scene, goodbye, you know, to God, goodbye. In that chapter, I also have a Jonathan Trumbull painting, a Metropolitan Museum of Art. And it's George Washington turning his back, actually, on his valet. And what I actually say, he's, he trusts Billy Lee totally. You know, Lee's got his back. But it's Billy Lee and George Washington and a horse. That's, that's the painting, the, th- the three of them. And this is very political art. Edward Savage's depiction of the Washington family. John Trumbull, one of many John Trumbull paintings of George Washington. The reason I thought it might have been the Yale Art Gallery is actually, Andy, as you know, what we call the Yale Art Gallery actually began as John Trumbull's gallery. And then he donated um, that to Yale at a certain point, And that became the, the seed crystal, the kernel of an amazing university art gallery.
0: But on the condition yes. that it would remain free admission forever. So ah, I've forgotten that. When you visit Yale, you can attend the you know visit the Yale University Art Gallery, which is I think the greatest university art museum in the world, um, and you can visit it for free. So in the new
1: book, the one that I'm working on, I have some John Adams as one of John Adams and one of his son John Quincy. They're both Copleys, and one I actually had to pay thirty dollars to see. It's the Boston Fine Arts Museum. Oh, and it's worth it. It's really beautiful. And the other one is actually in the Harvard collection. Adams only posed, you know, I say staff, but he actually stood for one painting in his life. He was kind of cheap. And it was this this beautiful full-length Copley. And then I've got one of his son, John Quincy Adams. That's all in the new book, too. And I'm hoping that I'll be able to reproduce these in color, Andy just because they're such beautiful paintings. And of course they have political significance and maybe they're racist and maybe they're sexist and maybe they're homophobic or this or that, but yes, it's totally core protected expression, you know, even if it's discriminatory in this way or that way, yeah. So it's a good question that she asked him, the oral advocate or her, I can't remember who the oral advocate was, but I think the answer is yes, and Andy, I'm, you're, you're seeing me now, our audience isn't, but I'm saying this as someone who knows who he is, who has looked in the mirror recently. I'm a person of color. I would not have been allowed to sit on Santa's lap, but they're allowed to do that. And I might be allowed as a customer to say, even though my kid's going to be, you know, allowed to sit on your lap, I actually don't like what you're doing and I'm not going to give you my business. Or you can say you're not a bigot, you're trying to do a certain thing, you're trying to create a certain mood, you do other things in other ways, you're not a bigot, you're just trying to create a 1940s, 1950s image of a certain sort. It's like you're making a movie, which black characters were in Saving Private Ryan? Were there any? Okay, it's a, it's a movie that's actually about a certain period, and the armed forces were segregated at that period. Um, or that movie with Madonna and Gina Davis, the uh, the baseball movie. Yeah, the, um, um,
0: yeah, League of Our Own.
1: Was that was that an own. all Was that an all white movie? Were there any black actors? I don't think so. But that's because they're trying to actually capture historically a certain period, in which s- there weren't integrated baseball games uh, uh, of a certain sort. I guess. So if you're, P- you're Jackie Robinson,
0: if you're a judge or a justice looking at at uh, works of art let's say, or, well, I guess that's at, at paintings, you know, and things like that. And you're, you're trying to determine whether they're not expressive, whether they're expressive for the purposes of this kind of analysis, would you have a, a strong default position that they are expressive and you'd really have to be convinced otherwise? Or a painting or a photograph? Yes. Yeah, I think that would be my initial instinct.
1: But since I just mentioned Jackie Robinson, just very briefly, I do want to say one other thing. If you want to know about how race changed in America in the 20th century, my friend Michael Klarman has written an important book called From Jim Crow to Civil Rights. I actually blurb the book. And he talks about Stuff like eventually the integration of the armed forces. And he talks about military service of blacks, even in segregated units in World War II. But he also talks about baseball as being important. Jackie, the Jackie Robinson moment being actually an important moment. Okay, so it it was a very thoughtful question, but it's not a gotcha. I think the easy answer is yes, you get to do that. And in effect, most directors, casting directors, until Lynn Miranda comes along, have an explicit or implicit, you know, whites-only policy for certain leading roles. They do because you have to
0: look like the the, the character. Okay, well, that's a lot on one question. We have about fifteen questions that we were going to talk about, but let me let's get to. Uh... Okay, let me
1: say, actually, Andy. Let me say one other thing um, on this because no, it's such a good. And we, let's talk about. So one of my favorite authors of all time passed away two years ago. Her name was Ursula Le Guin. She wasn't just a science fiction writer, although she won You've all the science fiction. we have talked about her wars.
0: before on this podcast.
1: Excellent. Okay, well, she's amazing. Her father was an amazing anthropologist who befriended a, a Native American named Ishi. He wrote all about Ishi, uh, Ishi the last Yahi. This was in California, and Ishi was the last member of his tribe. And Ursula Le Guin wrote a trilogy about a young orphan boy who has magical powers and goes off to a school for wizards where he meets dr- dragons and has adventures. And he's lowborn, and he has a high born rival. The trilogy is called A Wizard of Earthsea, and her hero is Jed, a J-E-D, Jed, or G-E-D, maybe. In any event, obviously, obviously, the great J.K. Rowling had, had read this trilogy. Um, in, in, again, orphan, you know, boy with magical powers going off to school for wizards and encountering dragons and and having a, a highborn rival. Here's the point: in Ursula Le Guin's account, actually, Jed is dark skinned, and then they made a movie of that. She, I think, signed away the rights, and I think in the movie. They depicted Jed as white, and she was not pleased by this at all. She was actually trying to make a point of a certain sort, but maybe she had signed away the the right or something. But as to all of this, and there's nothing particularly obviously political about this, this is just expression of a certain sort, whether it's written or whether it's a movie, um, whether it's a painting, free expression, and that includes a right to discriminate. It even includes a right to be a bigot.
0: Okay. So let's move on. Um, here's something which a lot of people have written about, and uh, uh, you know, I, I want to at least start to cover it here. Maybe we'll have a second episode uh, where we continue the discussion. But here's a question from Michael Ganson, uh, and actually another listener, Ken Mintz, asked almost the identical question, but I'm going to just read Michael's formulation. So he said, Is Justice Alito correct when he stated I know this is a controversial view, but I'm willing to say it. So, so far I can tell you that Justice Alito is correct, that it's a controversial view. But anyway, Alito told the journal in an interview, no provision in the Constitution gives them, and he's referring to Congress, the authority to regulate the Supreme Court, period. Okay, so that's the question. And uh, what is your take on those comments from Justice Alito? By
1: way of context, I think he's talking about the power, claimed power of Congress to pass a code of judicial ethics that would
0: apply to the Supreme Court. I think that was the context. Yes, it was. Although he's, of course, the, the comment says that the, they can't regulate the court, which is
1: right. But but it's in the even, context even of even easier. Of, but anyway, of, of, let's talk about of, ethics of, yeah. of judicial ethics. Now, our audience needs to know, full disclosure, that I consider Samuel Leto a friend. And the audience also needs to know that I have great professional respect for him, that this is all true. Now, here I think I pretty strongly disagree. So, first, he's allowed to say things outside the context of a case or controversy. And the rules of judicial ethics actually not only permit, but encourage judges and justices to talk about the judiciary system itself. So he's allowed to have views. Of course, everyone is. He's allowed to express views, even outside the context of a case or controversy, especially if he's expressing views that are judiciary related. So for example, and I just taught this yesterday in class, in the 1930s, uh, when Franklin Roosevelt proposed to pack the court, Justices, including the Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes and a liberal, Louis Brandeis, actually sent a letter to the Congress saying President Roosevelt has said this is a necessary as a kind of efficiency reform, but we are not behind on our docket. And actually, if you added a whole bunch of justices, that might slow us down. So so they actually took, they, they wrote in, in this famous letter saying, <laughs> don't, don't add justices as an efficiency reform. That's not A good reason. Okay, so justices to repeat and judges are allowed to talk outside of the courtroom, especially they're encouraged about judicial issues. I would hope that at an oral argument after briefing, or definitely in an opinion after briefing, that Justice Alito would not say anything quite like that. Okay, here's now what the Constitution does say. Let's start with the courts since he started court. Article three says. Here's the first sentence: The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court, and such inferior courts as the Congress may, from time to time, ordain and establish. Great. Okay. Simple question: How many justices are there on the Supreme Court? Where do they sit? When do they sit? What's a quorum for that court? What rules of civil procedure are they going to follow when they're hearing non-criminal cases? What rules of criminal procedure do they follow when they're hearing an appeal in a criminal case? What rules of evidence do they follow? And by the way, sometimes the court sits as a court of original jurisdiction, okay? Um, Constitution doesn't say any of that in Article 3. Here's really the only thing that it says that's I would say remotely relevant is Article One, Section Eight, the last sentence. Article One is the first article. It's about Congress, and Congress is first among equals structurally and textually in the Constitution. And the longest section, and it's the longest article as well as the first. Judiciary is third out of three. It's the shortest and the last. There's a pyramid, um, and and Congress comes first. It's I say in a book in two thousand five. I actually say. Primus inter pares, first among equals. The longest section of that longest article is section eight, the powers of Congress. Here's how that section ends. "Is the Congress shall power to dot, dot, dot. Make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, the powers of Congress, and all other powers vested by this constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. Most people, this is the article one, section eight, clause 18, the so-called necessary and proper clause, which is also in the business called the sweeping clause. And they call it the sweeping clause not just because it sweeps vertically. It's about powers vis-a-vis states. It sweeps horizontally. It's the clause that gives Congress power to pass all sorts of laws about the two other branches, including the head of the judiciary branch, the Supreme Court. So, see, without this, the Supreme Court, there is no court because we don't even know how many justices there are. Okay, here's what I say about this clause Long ago, I could be wrong about all this, but this isn't just to make a point about my friend, Justice Alito. This is my considered view in 2005 in a book that I wrote called America's Constitution, a biography. In truth, the real sweep of Section 8's final clause extended not downward over states, but sideways against other branches of the federal government. Congress would have broad authority to pass laws, and and they quote, quote, carrying into execution all the other powers vested by this constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof, unquote. Here, the constitution's text made explicit what otherwise might have been a disputable reading of the document's organizing schema. Congress stood as first among equals with wide power to structure the second-mentioned executive and third-mentioned judicial branches. The Congress would decide... How many cabinet departments would fill the executive branch? How these cabinet departments would be shaped and bounded? How many justices would compose the Supreme Court? Where and when the court would sit? What substantive laws and procedures would apply to federal admiralty cases? And a multitude of similarly weighty organizational issues. I, at that point, also cite, I believe, in the end note, a landmark Supreme Court opinion by none other than John Marshall um, it's in 1825. It's a case called um, Wayman versus Southerd. And Wayman versus Southard stands for the proposition. Oh, maybe I don't cite it here, but I have cited it, you know, in and, and many other places. Stands for the proposition that Congress, of course, has power to regulate procedure and evidence in federal courts. And all this goes back to the first Judiciary Act of 1789, specifying, for example, five associate justices and one Chief Justice. Why do we call him Justice Alito? Because the Constitution actually says judges. Here's what Article 3 actually says to that point. It says, quote, the uh, right after the sentence I just read, which is the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courses Congress may from time to time may establish Here's the next sentence. The judges both of the supreme and inferior courts, blah, blah, blah. So we call them justices because the first Judiciary Act calls them justices, which set up five associate justices and one chief justice, and had all sorts of rules saying, here's what a quorum is. And companion statutes passed very shortly thereafter, all adopted by members of first Congress, many of whom voted for the constitution and some of whom were in the constitutional convention or in the Rat- of Philadelphia, or the ratifying conventions federal process acts telling the courts what rules of procedure they would have to follow. There have been subsequent laws about rules of evidence. So Andy, in our previous episodes about 18 arguments for 18 years, and we had two follow-up episodes, I actually said, Congress has very, very broad power to pass all sorts of rules regulating the Supreme Court, because without actually congressional statutes, There's no really, Constitution, yes, creates a Supreme Court, but doesn't tell us at all how it even gets off the ground. So I take the position, and and I was a little taken aback, truthfully, by what Justice Lee was saying, and maybe he had something very specific in mind, and we'll just have to hear more from him, that, of course, Congress has sweeping power to structure the court and regulate all sorts of things about it. Now, Andy, here's what I did say in a follow-up to my testimony about 18 years for uh, 18 arguments for 18 years, because what would go too far? You know, because I'm now giving you I think originalism often gives you the easy case on one side. Now, what's the easy case on the other? And then, you know, where, where's the line? Here's what Congress can't do under that clause. And part because it has to be not just necessary, but proper. OK, so what exactly does proper mean? Okay, so here's what I I say in a piece that's actually just about to be published, following up on that 18 arguments for 18 years. I say, ever since the founding, Congress has used this clause to properly prescribe the size and shape of various executive departments, the powers and duties of various executive officers, size and responsibilities of the Supreme Court, powers and duties of Supreme Court members, both in active service and after voluntary retirement from active service, the rules of procedure and evidence operative in the Supreme Court, the timing of Supreme Court sittings, sittings, and myriad other kindred matters. Okay, so now what would go too far? Okay, and I tell you, actually, here's what would go too far. Consider, for example, the following hypothetical congressional law. A congressional statute purporting to dictate to the court how to construe a particular constitutional provision or how to construe the constitution in general. I say such a law would violate the court's power to say what the law is, to quote Marbury versus Madison. The power that is of the court to determine for itself in its own independent judgment. What the constitution in fact means but but that's not what a rule of ethics would would be it's not telling them how they have to construe anything in the constitution generally it's just saying you know here are some general rules of ethics i also said gee here's a rule that would be unconstitutional a rule that said you can only invalidate a congressional law by a 6-3 vote or a 7-2 vote or an 8-1 vote okay those are improper mechanisms to actually change the outcome substantive outcome of a constitutional ruling or interpretation but general rules of ethics prece- uh, criminal procedure civil procedure they're not like that at all
0: I guess I, I guess the question would be um, and you just said in your last sentence there that general rules of ethics um, would be okay but mm-hmm. um, but nothing that you had said before that uh, reflected on ethics in particular. So you talked about you know general the number the civil procedure that they that they would use things like that stru- structural things. It's possible that one might consider ethics, you know, a different a different uh, kettle of fish. So, for example, um, one aspect of ethics goes to questions of recusal, like what are the mm-hmm. standards for recusal, and the court has has maintained. I think we may have mentioned this on previous podcasts that it wants to determine for itself in each you know, case about recusal. And one reason for that is that if there were a general standard of recusal, that litigants might uh, game the system to try to exclude one justice or another uh, because these standards are very clear. And, and because the Supreme Court doesn't have backup justices, one of the other 18 arguments that, that you mm-hmm. have, that you could actually predetermine almost the result of a case by structuring the litigants and things like that. So that that's yeah. an example well, of where, good. where and you said you don't want to dictate the result of a, of a case. Well, you, said you didn't well, these, say these that. Did, yeah, yeah,
1: good. Well, these are be, generally behind a veil of ignorance, general perspective. But Andy, I gave this lecture actually to a group of conservatives, the Cato Institute, Last year, during, yes, September, Constitution Month, this was, this was part of the Robert Byrd payday. Thank you for pay month, pay, not just pay day, but pay week, pay month. Here's a paragraph from that. And this is being published very shortly. Here's what I said. And this was you know, long before Justice Leto. I'm not saying it to pick a fight with him because, but I, what he said genuinely surprised me. There is virtually no doubt I wrote a year ago that Congress could legislate proper rules for Supreme Court ethics, including rules specifying situations requiring recusal. And then what I said is, how is a rule prescribing en banc recusal in general for any jurist who has already heard her share, uh, her fair share of on banc causes, any different from any other sorts of recusal rules that Congress might properly adopt? Why cannot a rule limiting pre emeritus service to a fixed number of years be justified as a simple judicial ethics regulation discouraging politically timed and partisanship-tinged retirement. I honestly was of the view that almost no one I knew ever contested that not just under the text of the Constitution and under the structure of the Constitution and under these early statutes and, and practices, but also under Wayman versus Southern. And the Supreme Court, I was of the view that, of course, this is easy and obvious. And and there's nothing quite different about the Supreme Court than all other courts. And there are other statutes about judicial ethics for the rest of the judiciary branch. So unless there's some argument that the Supreme Court is completely different, and and I don't know why constitutionally that would be so, I, I do hear your point that there are going to be some tricky questions about how we actually enforce all of this in a sensible and substantive way, but that doesn't go to congressional power.
0: plus, Because the Supreme Court is
1: supreme only
0: over the other courts, not over the other branches. Right. That's a, yeah. And, and I, I absolutely agree with you. I'm just trying to bring up these, these Mm -hmm. points, but I mean, and what you just implied is there are already, our regulations on supreme court they have disclosure requirements already under federal law that they you know maybe they their compliance has been you know intermittent but not because they don't recognize that the law is a legitimate one but only their own interpretations of the law so so they already recognize that in a sense so i don't really understand where this comment is coming from that that they're not subject to authority of the uh, of the congress
1: Right. Now, in fairness to him, he may have a certain specific thing in mind and and we may hear more from him or his colleagues about what that might be. To repeat, I think he's very smart. And and he obviously did think about this. It wasn't just totally off the cuff. So, stay tuned. It's possible we'll hear more details.
0: One final thought on this, you know, it, you say well, he has the right to speak out on it particularly because it concerns regulation of the judiciary and that's an area where yeah. the justice not just pit- the
1: right but this is a good thing i want yeah,
0: to it's hear a, from it's almost him almost a duty okay but what i'm thinking is if he got asked this question or not just him but if any justice uh potential justice got asked this question during their confirmation hearings you know does congress have the right to to do this uh, i suspect the answer would be either yes or I'm, i can't answer that
1: The answer would be yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, chair. Yes, senator. Yeah. Yeah. And remember in my 18 year idea, I actually said one of the ways to help implement this is by getting people in their confirmation hearings to basically pledge allegiance to it, Mm -hmm. which it would be like, you know, agreeing in advance to step down after 18 years. Justice Breyer announced his resignation before it actually took effect he said you know i'll step down when my successor is confirmed justice o'connor i think did the same thing you're allowed to do that and so i'm saying well if you're allowed to do it a month in advance you know why can't not do it 18 years in advance you know as you're taking office you're promising to step aside in a certain way after 18 years so, um, and I, I like that enforced in a confirmation hearing prompt and that's different because vic and i For 20 years, my brother Vic, who's been on the podcast, co-author, have always taken the position that in general, it is absolutely improper to seek or to offer a promise in a confirmation hearings. But that's about a promise of how you're going to vote on this issue or that issue. But I don't think it's improper to say, do you promise to take the oath of office? Do you promise to be faithful to the United States? And I would say, do you promise to step down after 18 years? That's a different sort of thing than ruling on this case or that one. And you see, oh, I'm going to have to, we're going to have to draw lines here somewhere. But without the idea that on when it comes to passing laws, that there's simply no role for Congress to pass any laws about the Supreme Court whatsoever, that can't be right because without congressional laws, There is no Supreme Court as such, because we don't know how many justices there are and and where and when they sit and what their pay, what their salary is and all the
0: rest. By
1: the way, on promises, you know, the oath itself is a promise. Yes. Which is why asking for a certain kind of promise. Do you double promise? Do you promise to keep your oath, which is a promise? That doesn't seem to me to raise the same sort of issues. Do you promise to overturn Roe versus Wade or do you promise to uphold Roe versus Wade? No, Senator, I can't make that promise, okay? And if I did, you should despise me for it, and you should actually refuse to confirm me on that basis alone, because it shows that I really don't understand judicial independence properly understood, which is, of course, on the merits. I have to call it as I see it when the ball approaches the catcher's mitt.
0: So uh, here's a, we're going to end with this question today. which is a, I wouldn't say it's related, but it's on the same general topic. Um, this is from David Weddon or Whedon. Um, Has he asked up before? Oh, well, he's a very loyal listener. Yes, yes. yes no, yes, that, so, this is he's he, a frequent flyer. He's, he's a good guy. Yeah. Um, so, uh, can a Supreme Court? But that doesn't mean I know how to pronounce his name. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that'll be his next email. Can a Supreme Court justice be censured? I looked online, he said, and found that uh, Congress can impeach and remove a justice. Thank you. But it says nothing about censure. It seems also that some states allow state Supreme Courts to censure a justice, but nothing at the federal level that he found.
1: It's a great question, and you could argue it either way. I'll give you the strongest arguments on both sides, as if this were a law law school hypothetical exam. On the one hand, you could say, well, what does that censure mean? It's just freedom of speech of a certain sort. It's just words. Individual members of the House and Senate, you know, castigate, denounce, criticize people all the time. And not only can they do it, they actually have speech and debate clause immunity, so you can't sue them for libel as a general proposition. Maybe you can't even disbar them, Andy, as a general proposition proposition because dismarment is maybe an official quasi-governmental action in a way that being expelled from uh, the quinnipiac club or the maury's club or something or some you know purely private country club maybe they can do that because they're they're private and they're allowed so it's individual to repeat senator or representative can censure denounce renounce as they see and the only thing that you can do when that's a senator or representative does that is they can be sanctioned by the body itself. So Joe McCarthy did this all the time. And at a certain point, he was censured by the Senate, you see. OK, now, what about the Senate as a whole, the House as a whole? Well, that seems that you could say on the one hand, well, that's kind of just the same thing. That's a whole bunch of senators, you know, just acting together. They're saying as the Senate. But if I'm trying to defend it, I'm saying they're actually just individual senators aggregated. It has no official effect whatsoever. It's as if they say we believe in National Aardvark Day or whatever, so what? Okay, that's the argument on the one side. The argument on the other is the spirit, not the letter, but the spirit of the idea that there shouldn't be a bill of attainder is implicated here. Now, here's what a technical bill of attainder is, and it's actually in Article 1, Section 9, We talked about Article One, Section 8, which were the powers of Congress. Article One, Section 9 are the limits of Congress. Two paragraphs after that necessary and proper clause, here's a sentence. No bill of attainder or ex post facto law shall be passed. And what's a bill of attainder? Technically, it's actually a statute, full statute, the House and the Senate and presumably the president naming someone, Akhil Reed Amar, specifying someone by name proclaiming that Akilmar guilty of a criminal offense, actually technically the technical bill of attainder would be a capital offense and prescribing his execution. That's actually what technically a bill of attainder is. Now we talked about before, well, it says speech and press, but what about the larger spirit and reading things together and all the rest? This is a prohibition, but should we read it just this narrowly? The court has not. The court has said this ban also in effect, is a prohibition of what in England would be called a bill of pains and penalties rather than a bill of attainder. And that's, akil amar by name is being singled out for some other kind of specially disadvantageous legal treatment okay he's not going to be executed but we we say he should be put in the tower of london for 20 years on bread and water compared to execution akil will take that i suppose but that's a bill of pain and penalties or he shall be fined a certain amount of, of money okay now what if it doesn't do any and the supreme court has cases saying the spirit of the bill of attainder clause also sweeps to prohibit bills of pains and penalties. Okay, now what about a statute that merely says Akhil Amar is ineligible to be a government official, disqualified from any government position, as an employee or an officer or whatever? Well, in the case called Ex party it, the Supreme Court, per Justice Black, said that seems rather dangerous to us too, even though it's just basically ineligibility to get a government salary of a certain sort. That's a kind of punishment. Then... Later on, a case called United States versus Brown, I believe it's 1965, Earl Warren writes a sweeping opinion, again a very broad understanding of the Bill of Attainder provision, and the law clerk who wrote that decision on behalf of Earl Warren is the great John Hart Ely, and we've had episodes on John Ely. John Ely wrote his student note at Yale Law Journal all about the Bill of Attainder clause. His Editor for that note was the editor-in-chief of the law journal, Alan Dershowitz, whom we've had on the show. A year later, Ely finds himself as Earl Warren's law clerk and writes this opinion. He will later dedicate his book, Democracy and Distrust, to Earl Warren. You don't need many hearers if we if you choose carefully. We've talked about all that in previous episodes. But okay. But now this, you see, hypothetical censure, it goes even further. It's just words. It's nothing more than condemnation. And it's not even a bill, you might say, because it's actually the president isn't signing it. It's maybe just the House doing it or just the Senate doing it. So you could say it's a violation of the spirit of the Bill of Attainder Clause, this sort of censure. Or you could say it's just words they're just mouthing off. One final point. If they did this to a private person, to a Kilimar, that would be, I think, especially bad. But if they're doing it to someone who is himself, herself impeachable, you could see it as a kind of a lesser included punishment. Gee, if the House, instead of actually impeaching, you know, so-and-so, a sitting judge who is subject to impeachment or a cabinet officer, instead of doing that, they just censure. And especially if this were done as part of an effective plea bargain, the judge approach, a sitting judge saying, please don't impeach me. I don't want to go through all of that. uh, If you censure me, I'm not going to complain. I won't try to bring a lawsuit or anything else. That might be a kind of settlement of a certain sort, a plea bargain short of impeachment. That's easiest for the House because they're the prosecutor. If the Senate does that, I'm not quite sure if the House hasn't at first actually done an impeachment. You might say they they shouldn't actually be jumping in and jumping the gun. But presidents have been censured by unicamerally. Andrew Jackson was I think it was by the House. He was utterly outraged. The person who led the censure was Henry Clay. Jackson was every bit as furious as Trump at his most furious has ever been. And he wins an off-year, he wins the next election, his party controls, and he insists that they actually a retract the censure, and I believe they ripped out the page from the House Journal, I think. And then when he died right before he died. so so he was very emphatic about that. Near his deathbed, close to his death, he was asked if he had left anything, you know, unfinished. And he said, I didn't shoot Henry Clay. And I didn't hang John C. Calhoun. <laughs> so that, that's, that's what he says. OK, don't mess. Don't screw with Andrew Jackson. He will shoot you dead in a duel. Now, I think that actually you can remind me, Andy, but I, what happened with Bill Clinton? Was he censured? I believe he was by the Senate.
0: They were. Uh, yeah. So there was a resolution introduced, but it didn't pass.
1: OK, OK. Who has been censured by um, members of the House and Senate can be because Article 1, Section 5, I should have actually mentioned this as well, gives each House control to discipline its own members. And at the extreme, it can expel them, but it can also take them off of committees and censure them. This is what I just wrote about last week. A fellow named Preston Brooks smashes Sumner's head with a cane for a speech that Sumner's given, a speech called The Crime Against Kansas. There's a move to expel Brooks, who is a House member. The House moves to expel him. They have a majority, but not two-thirds. So they actually don't get a majority, uh, uh, two-thirds. But as soon as they have a majority to expel him, he stands up and says, you know, I resign. His constituents re-elect him by an overwhelming majority. What he did was utterly outrageous. He's a South Carolinian and because they don't believe in free speech. You see, uh, Sumner is given a speech criticizing slavery and criticizing South Carolina and the senator from South Carolina, Andrew Butler, who is Preston Brooks's kinsman. Another guy from the house, a guy named Kite, K-E-I-T-T, another South Carolinian, Wall Brooks is smashing Sumner's head. And Sumner is actually out of commission for three years. His seat is empty. He's recovering from cranial trauma, head trauma. Another guy by prearrangement, Wall. Brooks. Brooks is smashing Sumner's head in this guy named Kite. He pulls out a pistol and prevents other senators from rushing to Sumner's aid. Okay, he's actually censured. They don't they don't want to expel him. They vote to censure him and they have a majority. I think it's like 106 to 95. And he, too, resigns as a matter of kind of honor and his constituents send him back. So the list that you're about to read me is a list of people. They're mainly going to be House and Senate members who have been censured, and it's going to include, I bet, a Joe McCarthy, but also this guy, Kite. Um, so what's the list? But not actually Brooks because they tried first to expel him, and he didn't wait around for them to censure him.
0: Well, okay. So there's, first, as far as the president goes, mm-hmm. um, you have you know Andrew Jackson, 1834, expunged in 1837, and. Mm-hmm. And, and I th- as I said, I think in expunction, they actually physically ripped, teared the pages out of the journal. And actually the reason that he was censured, if you're interested, is for withholding documents um, that, that the Senate had requested.
1: But but yeah. also, it, I think it was in part because of his um, actions in connection with taking money out of the bank and well, that's firing what they, the Secretary of the Treasury. That's what the, the documents
0: were related to. Okay. Related to, okay. The, okay. to those actions. Okay. And,
1: and th- this, was, this was though the, the House did the censuring, right? No, the Senate. Oh, okay. Oh, so Senator Henry Clay. Okay, Clay was Speaker of the House, but he was also Senator. I I couldn't remember at this time whether he was in the House or Senate.
0: Okay. Then in 1860, the House uh, adopts a a resolution admonishing James Buchanan, as well as the Secretary of the Navy, a guy named Isaac Tusi, for uh, awarding contracts, uh, according to Wikipedia here, (laughs) on the basis of party relations. So it's not clear this was actually censure uh, as opposed to a reprimand or something like that. Yes. Okay, so those are presidents. Yeah, those are the only ones that that passed um, for presidents. Now, as far as senators go... Um, The most famous one is Joe McCarthy. On Joe McCarthy, see, this is like ripped from the headlines. He goes around saying false things about people, slandering them,
1: actually, because it's oral. It's slander. He's smearing them, defaming them. And you can't sue him because he's doing it on the House, uh, assuming the Senate floor. So because you can't sue him, the only recourse is from the Senate itself. And that's because Article 1, Section 5, which I had alluded to, says each House may dot, 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 punish its members for disorderly behavior. And with the concurrence of two-thirds, expel a member. And you didn't get two-thirds for Brooks, okay? So that's where they get the power to censure their own members. What is this in part a counterpart to? A later passage of Article One that says, senators and representatives for any speech or debate in either house shall not be questioned in any other place. So there's absolute freedom of speech, you see, of a certain sort. You can't sue a senator or representative for defaming you intentionally and without any factual basis whatsoever. So, you know, even if under New York Times versus Sullivan and even if you're just a private person, there's no recourse in a court of law. But the House may punish you for your disorderly behavior. And so Rudy Giuliani slimed people, and they sued him and have just won, actually, in a libel action this week, Andy. But you couldn't do that to Joe McCarthy as long as he's saying all these things on the Senate floor. So the only recourse is for the Senate itself to say, you know, Senator, you're out of order.
0: Or I guess the House could do it.
1: Um, no, no, actually, because each,
0: each house actually gets to punish its own members. And of course, the most recent member of the House of Representatives that was censured was Adam Schiff, now candidate for Senate. Was he formally censured? He was. For making allegations regarding Russian collusion in the 2016 presidential election and the first impeachment of Donald Trump. Yeah,
1: totally partisan. I bet no. I bet no Democrat voted for that.
0: Yeah, two hundred thirteen to two hundred nine with six present votes.
1: Yeah, that's just a partisan thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I don't that think outrageous. any of the others were totally partisan.
0: Yeah, I mean the most recent one before that was Paul Gosar, but he was censured for putting a a video on social media that showed himself committing violence against the president of the United States and another member of the House to finish up this discussion about censure you know if you if the house were to impeach someone um then essentially they've done the same thing that they would do if they had censured him or her and more and Um, more censure is less included so if they could do that you would think they could do less than that
1: that's what that's the argument but you'd have to be impeachable um, mm-hmm. For that greater power includes the lesser power argument to apply, and even then, you could say no, it's all or nothing, and if unless the you know the the target agrees to it, they could say no. In effect, I demand a trial. If you want to impeach me and convict me, fine; otherwise, shut the front door.
0: So, all right. So, what's the answer to the question? Kind of I, I said it was address? a good
1: one, and it's a close one, and I gave you both sides. Yes. And, what's and, your and, answer? and 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 in an exam, that that gets an A. Okay, because I identified both sides. You know, I I might say they can do it, but so what? They shouldn't be doing it. They shouldn't be wasting their time on this stuff in general. But for a judge, I understand that it's a lesser... Let me take it back. Okay, now that I really think for a judge, okay, you can
0: do it because this
1: is kind of lesser included
0: to impeachment. I guess the question is, why would the Senate or the House be weighing in at this level, if they're not doing the business of impeachment? In other words, they have- Because a they're not
1: doing anything else useful, and it gets them on Twitter. Yes. That's why, you know, even if it's permissible, is this what we want to spend our time doing?
0: Well, okay, but I think this is a reasonable question, which is, you know, we yes, they might have the ability to do it, but what is their constitutional duty um, here? So you could say they have a duty to impeach people that are, that you know, that, commit high crimes and misdemeanors or whatever.
1: Suppose they didn't use the word censure. They just passed a sense of the Senate resolution, a sense of the House resolution, that this is not proper deportment for a federal judge. I, But I, I don't love the idea that they're going to start doing this for private individuals. It's the sense of the Senate that Barbie is a crappy movie. Okay. And I'm not saying Barbie is
0: a crappy movie. I haven't seen it. Okay.
1: And it may be a great movie, but do I really want the Senate
0: to be weighing in on all of that? Okay. But let's go back to our last question for a minute. Okay. there's go- Let's assume that there is a, that a code of ethics is promulgated for the judiciary. That's more, you know, let's say encompassing than what exists now. And notwithstanding Justice Alito, it passes uh, muster, you know, no one says that you can't do it. So now you have this code of ethics. How are you going to enforce it? Okay, the only sanction you really have, seems to me, is impeachment. So perhaps this—you know the House and the Senate need more tools in their toolbox to enforce a, a code of judicial ethics than impeachment. I mean, that's pretty okay, so that's, that's
1: a That's a brilliant thought, again, that this is lesser included within impeachment, and you've answered one question – Okay, even if a judicial code of ethics is only enforced through a shaming sanction, this may be a shaming sanction of a certain sort. Mm -hmm. That's that's an argument. Yes, I see it. Okay, Um, but again, it's adjunct to impeachment because I don't want them to do this about you or me or just just generally private persons. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, um, it's a sense of the Senate. We hereby censure America's Constitution because we think Achille and Andy bloviate too much. Okay, that might be true, okay. They, but the they're Senate welcome has to pass. To do.
0: They're welcome to pass such a resolution because it'll get us <laughs> a lot more listeners.
1: Um. <laughs> Throw us into that tar patch. Yes, <laughs> yes. Please do it, okay. I was worried, Andy, that I was skating close to the line when, in testimony before the Senate, I said, "You guys are actually spending all your time tweeting, snark, and dialing for dollars." <laughs> that was close to being
0: the attempt of the Senate. Mm. You may have held them, you may have been holding them in contempt. <laughs> and look, you know, the Supreme Court has certain jurisdiction over lower courts. Um, who has jurisdiction over the Supreme Court? I mean, beyond impeachment, there's not much. So therefore, you see why the justices say they they, they police themselves. But, um, you know, perhaps the, you know, the, this, this system is, has a little bit of a hole in it. So. And, uh, and the court of
1: public opinion is important, and is the Senate, is the House part of that court of public opinion? So, audience members, these are great questions. Dave Whedon, um, thanks again. You you did it again. We're grateful.
0: Okay, and we're going to have more of these question episodes um, in the near future, and of course we're coming up to the opening of the new term of the court, so I think maybe we'll have a, a preview of the term for you so you can see what some of the big cases are maybe akio will weigh in on some of his, some of his predictions or or at least and, and and lots of great guests don't forget our guests and don't forget continuing legal education is coming october 4th